Well, go ahead and take a seat. Uh, let me add my welcome. My name is Alistair. If we've never met, I'm the lead pastor here, and I'd love to meet you after the service. A couple of quick things. Sometimes you don't realize that what your soul really needs is a melodica solo. Thank you. Curtis, melodica solo. I didn't know that's my soul language. Uh, masks. Uh, UBC uh, has not yet updated any of the regulations. So even though the government's changed, as you'll know, the mask updates are kind of being uh, kept differently at different businesses and different organizations. Here's all I want to say. We'll, we'll be updating our guidelines as we go, but at the very least, the baseline of Christian kindness is being kind to someone whether they wear a mask or not. Amen? Amen. So there's going to be different levels of comfort in society moving forward. Just put on a mask if someone's uncomfortable. Like, if, that, if you can't do that, you really need to consider what it is that we follow a Lord who came to seek and save the lost, who gave his life as a ransom, who came not to be served, but to serve. So let's just continue to model a very low baseline of Christian kindness in the world when people have different levels of comfort in masks as we move through this pandemic. Let's just be kind to one another. Amen? Amen. All right. One more announcement from me. I promise then we'll get to the sermon. St. Pete's kids. Um, man. I, uh, I realized I'd never taught at St. Pete's Kids. For, so a few weeks ago, Rachel was like, you're a bad lead pastor. You've never taught in St. Pete's Kids. And I'm like, you're right. And so I went and I, I taught with St. Pete's Kids, and I'm going to do that on a, a semi-regular basis. I loved it. And I'm trying to think of, like, what your experience would be. Like, when I wasn't a pastor and just attending church, and if the pastor said what I'm about to say to you, I would have been like, this doesn't apply to me. This applies to you. Um, if one, like if most of us, if not all of us, if you served in St. Pete's Kids just once every six weeks, first, it would take so much stress off of our staff. Like for eight years, every week, I have to hear the same thing. We don't have enough volunteers. Like that's just a baseline. Like I've heard that every single week for eight years, and I'm just tired. Our staff's tired. And like that's not your fault. Like, there's a lot of need, and like we all have boundaries and different abilities to give. But once every six weeks. Now, I know the one objection is like, I don't like kids. <laughs> Here's the thing. Get over it. <laughs> like, honestly. Like, on, like, honestly. They're humans. And like, there are, there are literally scriptures where Jesus rebukes his disciples for not welcoming the children. So here, I, I want us to be a church that welcomes people, right? Like, that we welcome people to hear about the gospel. And for a lot of us, that's a huge stretch, to share our faith with people, like our friends or family, people we don't know. So this is a building block of learning how to be with someone who's not like you, someone who's vulnerable, someone who, who wants to just worship with you and play. And so, the, like, the standard for St. Pete's Kids, just to, like, really set the bar for you, is like, yeah, you have to have no criminal background. So don't go committing crimes to get out of this. But that's like what we're looking for. And then when you show up, like you're not having to teach. You're not having to lead. You're not having to do anything crazy. Like you're literally there just to make sure the kids stay alive. And Miss Rachel and other key volunteers take care of this stuff. So like it's really not as daunting as hard as you think it is. And so if all of us, like I'm, I'm dead serious. If every single person here, if you call St. Pete's home, if just once every six weeks you could do that for us. 
you would bless Miss Rachel, you would bless me, you would bless our children, and you know what? I think you would be blessed too. And so I know I'm being a little, like, pushy on this than I usually am, and I hope you'll take that with grace. I know that you may have reasons for not doing it, and I'd be happy to hear that. But if you would seriously consider and just realize, like, if you, like, oh, well, someone else will do it, the reality is we make these announcements and, like, one person signs up. And so we really need your help on this one, okay? Amen? Ish? Amen-ish? So I saw a clip on the Instagram recently of a man named Buddy Guy. He's 85 years old, and he's still playing the blues with passion. I love this. I mean, I've been playing guitar most of my life, and I've never been able to pick up the guitar and play it like that. I mean, this is amazing. And Dan Kimball, who posted this clip on the Instagram, uh, here, here's what he said. Dan Kimball wrote this. I hope I have as much energy teaching the Bible at age 85 as Buddy Guy has playing the blues. Oh, man, I hope so, too. I hope so, too. In our new series, Brick and Mortar, we are returning to our foundation in Christ, and we're doing this by laying one brick at a time. And so this might be covering old ground for a lot of us. For some of us, this might be entirely new ground. It might be somewhere in between. But for all of us, we can always come back to the basics. We can always come back to our shared foundation in Christ with fresh eyes and an eager heart to be stirred afresh by his goodness. And so my hope in this series is that we might stir ourselves and sustain our awe and our wonder and our zeal over how very good our foundation is in Christ, that we might be more and more like Buddy Guy when it comes to our faith. That's the hope in getting back to our foundations. So through Lent all the way through Holy Week, our focus for the first eight weeks of this series is going to be the gospel. Each week we're going to look at part of the gospel in order to appreciate the whole gospel. So the gospel is the good news of great joy about Jesus. It's the good news about his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised return. It's the good news about the faithfulness of God in Christ to bring salvation to all of creation, including us. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And while there are many things we can explore, here are the topics we're going to focus on. Kingdom, grace, justification, new covenant, reconciliation, atonement, resurrection, and salvation. And by looking at each of those parts, I think we'll start to get a sense of the whole. And so that's the goal over the next few weeks. And I want to add this caveat. Uh, every sermon is going to be more like a 30,000 view vantage point of these topics. I'm only ever going to be able to scratch the surface of each one. And so if there's ever a topic where you're like, man, I really don't know why you didn't say this or touch on that, me too. And so um, I, if you want resources, if you ever want to go deeper into one of these topics, I'd be happy to provide resources or make recommendations. Uh, today, our first or second brick in this series uh, is the kingdom. Mark summarized the ministry of Jesus this way. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Matthew's gospel, 
the Sermon on the Mount. It is entirely about life in the kingdom of God. So the gospel, according to Jesus, was about the kingdom of God. His message was about the kingdom of God. He was about the kingdom of God. So I want to begin with a very clear definition of the kingdom of God up front, uh, just so we're on the same page. Here's how the New Testament scholar R.T. France defines it. The kingdom is in itself a dynamic agent, not the result of someone else's action. We may seek it, pray for it, preach it, enter it, but people do not create or achieve it. And this is necessarily so by definition, for kingdom of God means God in control, God's initiative, God's purposes accomplished. So the kingdom of God is God's kingship, his rule, his authority, his reign. That's why we pray, your will be done. Your kingdom come. These things are kept together. So the kingdom of God is not so much a place as it is God himself ruling and reigning. And so the church embodies the kingdom only to the extent of which we surrender and come under the authority of God's rule and reign. So the church is not always the place of the kingdom, but often is. And so we get glimpses of the kingdom here and now as we come under the rule and reign of God, and we're promised that the rule of the reign of God will one day be established in full. So the kingdom is already, but not fully here yet. So let's just think about one parable very quickly with this definition of the kingdom in mind. It's the rule and reign and authority of God. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, which is another way of saying the kingdom of God, is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Is God's rule and reign and authority really this valuable? Is God's rule, his authority over your life, really worthy of selling everything you have to take a hold of it, or more rightly, to be taken a hold of it. So this morning, I want to meditate on another parable, the parable of the wedding feast, to help us see how the kingdom of God is worthy of joy that surrenders our whole lives to it. The kingdom of God is worthy of a joy that surrenders our whole lives to God's rule and reign and authority. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew 22, which is what we just had read to us. Uh, we're going to begin in uh, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So this is what the kingdom of God is like. It is like a king throwing an extravagant wedding feast. Now, commentators again and again agree that this parable is rooted in a prophetic image from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. And here's what we read there. The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, 
a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that's spread over all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and reproach of his people. He'll take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So this parable is about promise. About this promise. The promise of a very good future. You know, the great banquet festival of God. Throwing when death is swallowed up and defeated. The party is happening because there's no longer any need for tears in all of creation. This great celebration is occurring on the day when salvation washes over all the land and makes all things new. So salvation is complete, so now we feast. That's the image. But did you notice it's God who acts? God is the one who makes the feast for all people. God swallows up death. God wipes away tears. God takes away reproach. The people have waited. God has acted. And so this is how God rules and reigns and exercises his authority. And so it's no surprise that the kingdom gives us good reason to be glad and rejoice in his salvation because it's the kind of action that stirs joy. And so the kingdom of God is like a lively celebration. It's as generous as it is abundant. It's, a, it's the delight of a meal featuring the very best food and wine. And the kingdom of God, then, is like a very good party. The kingdom of God is like a very good party, and it's thrown to celebrate a world made new and restored to wholeness. But the thrust of this parable is this phrase, come to the wedding feast. Come to the wedding feast. William Barclay writes, to think of Christianity as a gloomy giving up everything which brings laughter and sunshine and happy fellowship to life uh, is, is to miss its whole nature. Christianity is an invitation to joy that we are invited, and it is joy we miss if we refuse the invitation. So we can hear the invitation as come, share in God's joy. And the king commissions his servants to tell his guests, the party's prepared, it's ready, it's time to come. Come to the feast. Have you ever heard of um, dinner en blanc? I think that it's actually pronounced diner en blanc. Uh, it's French for diner in, or dinner in white. And it's this, uh, none of that landed, that's fine. Uh, in a worldwide event, in which, uh, not Christians, Christians might go, uh, people, they dress up in white to go to this pop-up diner setting in a public space like this. And only a select number of people who've signed up in advance are invited to the location on the day of the dinner. So you never know when it's going to happen. And if you get the invite, it's like day of. So you got to be ready. And it generally takes place in like an iconic location. In New York, for example, the event has grown to an attendance of more than 6,500 people with a waiting list of over 80,000 people. 
and it's taken place in Vancouver quite a few times too. And so essentially, you register for an invite, you twiddle your thumbs, and it's all very exclusive, which only adds to the allure of the dinner in white. The feast in our parable, the banquet of God in Isaiah, it transcends this kind of dinner, the dinner in white. It understandably, in the parable, has an exclusive guest list. It is, after all, a king's banquet. It's for his son. It's a prestigious event. It's an event for the ages. And so the servants go out and they call the guests, but they would not come. That would be like finally getting that elusive invite to the dinner in white and saying, nah, not in the mood. I mean, it almost defies understanding who passes on an event that's so exclusive and celebrated. Who says no to a king's banquet? So the king, hosting the wedding, he sends out further details. Everything's prepared and ready, the very best. It's like he, he sent the servants out with the entrees, like, smell, see, it's good. Come to the wedding. Come to the feast. The people say, nah. They still won't come. And the parable goes on. They paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Keeping the parable in context, Jesus, at this point in Matthew's gospel, he's critiquing leaders in Israel who oppose him. Leaders who Jesus associates with the sordid history of shamefully treating and killing God's prophets. And this is actually the third parable in a row that Jesus has spoken to them. And in the first, he calls out their blatant disobedience. The second calls out their failure to steward what has been entrusted to them, God's people, and their intention to kill God's son. And now in this parable, what's going on? He's warning them that they're actually at dire risk of missing out on God's salvation altogether, of not being included at this end time salvation feast. So, if the leaders Jesus tells this parable to will not celebrate at the wedding of the king's son, in other words, if they will not celebrate that Jesus is God's son, sent from God for the salvation of Israel and the whole world, they will be left out on the future that God is establishing. They will miss out on the promised banquet in Isaiah. They will not find themselves at the table once the work of salvation is complete and washes over the face of the earth. But the point Jesus is making, it extends beyond the leaders of his time to us too. Essentially, Jesus says, people are going to choose their everyday life over the banquet. They will even murder my servants, which is the, well, that escalated quickly part of the parable. And people will have their reasons, however weak, to reject the invitation to the wedding banquet. And the question is, Why? Like, why reject such a great feast? And I was thinking about that this morning, and our youngest daughter would not eat breakfast. And all I could think of was, why? Why? It's breakfast. It's delicious. Just eat the food. Why? Every morning. <laughs> sometimes, when it comes to rejecting the invitation to God's banquet, sometimes it's just misunderstanding. We think... That the commands of God, all these thou shalt or thou shalt nots in Scripture, are restrictive. 
that they're not actually about joy. And so we can misunderstand, and if we're honest, in our ignorance, paint a picture of God that isn't true. We think God is controlling and he's out of touch with the times. But the truth is, freedom requires healthy boundaries. And so every command from God is establishing boundaries so that life can flourish. Even commands that appear initially restrictive to us are for this purpose. They're for our joy. They're for our flourishing. The commands are for us to be able to truly celebrate and enjoy life. And sometimes we just don't see how this is true. And so when we're invited to a great banquet feast of God, we hear it as a command. He's commanding us. I'm not going to go. Or we hear it as a bait and switch. If I show up, you're just going to give me a spoonful of commands. And so we say no. Sometimes the reason we reject God's kingdom isn't necessarily bad things in themselves either. We see that here. In the parable, one person goes to their farm. They're doing their work. Another person goes to their business. They're doing their work. You know, these people aren't going off on immoral adventures or like epic benders. And essentially, it's pointing out it's so easy for us to get caught up in the things of time, the things of earth, that we, th- we don't pay attention to the things of eternity. We get caught up in life, and we don't have the time, or we don't want to waste the time, on an, inv- an invitation to a kingdom that is kind of here, but mostly in the future. These two reasons are probably the most optimistic I can be about why we reject God. But the truth is a little more bleak. Paul writes to the church in uh, his letter of the Colossians, uh, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The reason we say no to God's invitation is because we are accustomed to living in the domain of darkness instead of the kingdom of the beloved son or the kingdom of light. In John's gospel, we read, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. God says, come to the feast, and we say no, and we have our reasons, whatever they may be, we have our reasons to justify why we're going to continue living the way we want to live without coming under God's rule and reign. But the truth is, the verdict is, We just prefer the darkness. The problem for us is that when we hear the word darkness, we think of the murderers in this passage. Or we think of atrocities in our world, like what's happening in Ukraine. You know, we certainly don't love murder or war or misery or injustice or oppression or suffering. And so typically, what we do is we like to define darkness in a way that excludes us. We like to define darkness in a way that excludes us. But darkness is a bigger concept in Scripture than just horrific evil. In the dark, according to Scripture, we can do whatever we want. The light's out. We're not informed by the light, by God's rule and reign. So in the dark, we keep living for ourselves however we see fit, by our terms and conditions. But in the dark, even though we may be doing what we want, we're actually fumbling around. Because according to Scripture, in the dark, we are not free, even though we think it's freedom. We're ruled by our flesh. In Scripture, that's uh, the whims and untamed desires of our bodies. 
our desires apart from God, the flesh. We're ruled by Him. We're enslaved in the dark by sin. We're deceived in the dark by the power of Satan and the spiritual powers of darkness. And here's the thing. You might not see it that way. And that's just evidence that you remain in the dark. The reality is, as Paul says, we need to be delivered out of darkness. You don't need to fumble around and just switch on a light. You're not going to find the switch. You need to be delivered out of this darkness. You need the light to come into the darkness to illuminate that you have, in fact, loved the darkness instead of the beloved son, that you're the person who says no to the kingdom before you say yes to the son, which is what Paul says when he says God has transferred us out of the darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. It's a slavery language. God has broken the chains of the dark. He's broken them so that you can be redeemed and set free through the forgiveness of sins. This is what God has done for us in Christ. So returning to the parable, the call, it's gone out into the world. Come to the wedding feast. Come to the wedding feast. In other words, come to the kingdom of the beloved son. Come to the kingdom of the beloved son. Taste the goodness of God in Christ. Taste redemption. Taste the forgiveness of sins. Taste what Jesus has offered in his body and blood on the cross. Come to the banquet being set for a world redeemed through Christ. So this is what the kingdom of God is like. Coming out of the dark into the light. But the parable continues. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main road and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now before you judge the judgment of God, remember that this parable, the king is responding to murderers, people who willingly and rebelliously killed his servants. But there is a big implication for us, of course. If you refuse to come to the wedding banquet, there will be judgment. There will be judgment. If you refuse to come to the wedding banquet, there will be judgment. We don't like that message, but it's in the scriptures again and again because it is through the judgment of God that God eradicates everything that opposes, resists, rejects, or tarnishes his good and perfect rule and reign. Without judgment, God cannot name evil for what it is, and he cannot mend a broken world. He has to judge it and call evil and darkness for what it is, in order to bring about this kingdom of his beloved son. And if we reject the invitation to the banquet, all we face is judgment. And this is part of how God rules and reigns and exercises his authority. But it is not the whole thrust of the parable. What's significant in this part of the parable is that the wedding feast opens up to unexpected guests the unworthy. Matthew makes a point of saying it, both bad and good. This would have irked the religious leaders listening to Jesus. They already know Jesus invites people 
into his presence that they think he has no business associating with. Tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. And now Jesus is saying, at this banquet feast of God, the bad and the good alike are invited to the table, which means the invitation, it's not based on morality or performance or perfection. The invitation is based simply on whether you'll show up. Will you accept the invitation? The table is set. Come to the banquet. And so the invitation we see is far and wide and undiscriminating. Essentially, God in this parable is showing us he's torn up the guest list. The great banquet of God will not be an exclusive event. It will not be full of select religious elite who were incredibly good and moral. Because Isaiah prophesied the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. And so this means Jews and Gentiles and holy and unholy and righteous and sinners alike are going to find themselves at this banquet feast. And so the parable is developing in such a way to reveal the heart of God. God is not interested in an exclusive guest list because he's bringing salvation for all people. And so this is what the kingdom of God is like. A far-reaching invitation. A far-reaching invitation from the hospitality of God. The God who wants to welcome any and all. But the parable also ends with a really weird or strange twist. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, the dinner in white requires one thing, that you wear white. And I read this interesting article with advice for first-time attendees, and they, they, they were answering the question, uh, how do you know if your outfit is white enough? And they said, if you're asking the question, the answer is, it's not. And they go on to say, like, even like a slightly off white shirt in a sea of pristine White is like wearing a scarlet dress among white. It is so noticeable. And so if you don't show up in pure white, pristine white, not only is it just a bit of an embarrassment for you or a faux pas, but it also indicates you don't really grasp the nature of the event or you don't value the nature of the event. And so you're not really participating in it. You're a bit of an outlier. The king has already torn up the guest list. He's, an ex he's extended an invitation far and wide to any and all who would come, good or bad. But now there's a man not wearing a wedding garment. And this man is rejected outright. And it's a bit shocking after this undiscriminating invitation. Why is he so harsh with this one guy for not wearing the right clothes? Now in that time, the clothing expected at a wedding, it wasn't necessarily a special garment, but just decent, clean, white clothes that most people would have had available. And so this man, despite being invited to a royal wedding, did not go home and change into his wedding clothes, but, clothes, but turned up in ordinary, dirty clothes. And so it was an insult to the host. This man doesn't value what he's being invited into. He's accepted the invitation, but he is not participating. 
And so Jesus concludes with the ominous, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, when I was early into my Christian faith, I think about like three years at this point, another follower of Jesus asked me out of the blue one day, are you called or are you chosen? And I had no idea what he was going on about. I didn't know what he was referring to this parable. I wasn't sure why he was asking. I didn't know what the right answer even was. And I just heard the word called and chosen, and they both sounded good. So I said, both. And he goes, hmm. And it seemed like a satisfactory answer. And I think it still holds up. The conclusion to this parable makes it clear. There's a difference between showing up to the banquet like accepting the invitation and celebrating in the part- and participating in the, the celebration. There's a difference between showing up and celebrating. Showing up and participating. The man showed up, but he did not participate. He didn't put on the wedding garment. And so we should keep in mind, just really quick, this is a parable. It's a parable. It's, it's not meant to be once and for all time, like if you don't have the right clothes, you can't go to God's party. Like, of course, Jesus is going to welcome and embrace people who are destitute and have no clothing. I just want to say that outright so we don't start thinking like God's going to have preferential treatment of people just good clothing. It's not what's happening. But, but the point being made is this. God wants us to participate in his kingdom. He wants us to come under his authority, which is a value we have as a church. He wants us to come under his rule and loving reign. He wants us to get caught up in the joy of celebrating his kingdom. We can't earn the invitation. We're called as we are, but we can put in effort into the celebration. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ or to be clothed in Christ. So we're all invited to the benefits of Christ. He's died so that your sins, though red as scarlet, you're now washed white as snow. You're redeemed and you're forgiven in Christ. Put on Christ, Paul says, which is another way of saying be clothed in his life and let his life transform you degree by degree into his likeness. When you put on Christ in respect to the kingdom, that makes you a citizen of the kingdom. You live like someone who belongs to the kingdom and an ambassador. You represent the kingdom wherever you are as you live as a foreigner in this different land than the kingdom come. Put on Christ. Participate. This is what the kingdom of God is like, putting on the life of Christ. And so back to the question I asked at the beginning of the sermon. Is God's rule, is his authority, is his reign really as valuable as hidden treasure? Is it truly worthy of selling everything we have to possess it or more rightly be possessed by it? Well, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It is a very good party thrown to celebrate a world made new and whole. It's coming out of darkness into light. It's a far-reaching, undiscriminating invitation from the welcoming heart of God. It is putting on the very life of Christ and being changed through the celebration of the kingdom. In biblical terms... This parable is showing us that God the Father sent his Son into this world to proclaim the coming kingdom of God, God's perfect and good rule and reign, constantly demonstrated through the life of his Son, Jesus Christ. But his servants rejected him and have him crucified. He's raised from the dead, 
And he promises he'll return and make all things new. He has set this feast. It is coming. It is assured. But first, there will be judgment. And so Jesus says, stay awake. Put on the wedding garments of my kingdom. Live like a citizen of my kingdom here and now. Come under my rule and reign as you wait for the table to be set and for you to take your seat. Because my kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. And when I return, I will make all things new. More literally, Jesus calls us with these words. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray.